Clean Cut Landscaping is pleased to sponsor programming on WAGP. Clean Cut Landscaping offers residential and commercial lawn maintenance and landscaping on a one-time, seasonal, or year-round basis. Serving the South Carolina Lowcountry, Clean Cut is not just their name, it's what they do. Additional information is available from Jeffrey Beck at 843-473-5347. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Approved of God, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what the Bible line is all about. We're here for the next hour to answer questions you may have as you open the word of God, challenges you're facing uh, as you study the scripture or a particular question or issue or some personal question in your spiritual life or ministry life. If you'd like to call and ask, the number locally is 525-1859, 843-525-1859 is the number. For those using the internet, you can call us there or at 877, the call letters WAGP980. Or if you're more comfortable, you can email us here directly into the studio. And we get tons of email each week, TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. If you do call, you get preference. And uh, if you want to go on the air live, you certainly can. Or if you're more comfortable simply dictating your question, we're happy to receive it in that fashion as well. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today for the Bible Line. It is indeed, Pastor. As you mentioned, uh, we do get numerous emails, and uh, we've got a few that we need to get to right now. Kelvin from Lancaster, New Hampshire, would like you to expound on Revelation 19, specifically dealing with verse 10, which reads, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does this mean to me as a believer? Uh, It's a great question. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's just underscoring the fact that the very nature and purpose of prophecy is to testify about the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the scripture, Jesus said, speak of me. So ultimately, he's the hero of the Bible from Genesis all the way through the Revelation. Everything is pointing to Messiah and his work, his incarnation, his substitutionary death, resurrection, his sovereign reign that is yet to come uh, when he will literally rule and reign upon the earth, though he is certainly reigning from his throne in heaven today. So the nature and purpose of all prophecy is ultimately to testify about the Lord Jesus. The Bible really ultimately is about him. And so as you read the Bible, sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll see him in the shadows, sometimes in the bright sunlight. Uh, But if you miss uh, him in the Old Testament or the New Testament, then you've really missed what the Bible is about. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And if you would like to email us, you may do so at tbl at wagp.net. Another listener in New Hampshire, a location called Berlin, New Hampshire, Tom writes in Ephesians 4, 
11 through 14, he has a couple of questions regarding this passage. First, is this promise for today in regards to apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, pastors, and pastor teachers to equip the saints until we all have unity in the faith so that we no longer can be tossed to and fro by the waves of every doctrine? If yes, specifically, how do apostles and prophets' roles look today in order to accomplish the equipping unity and discernment of believers? Let me read that text. Not everyone has the advantage of having a copy of the Scripture open before them. Uh, It says here, He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And so he's speaking of the Lord Jesus and his ascension. And he gave as a result of his ascension, some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So interestingly here, the Lord Jesus is credited with the giving of spiritual gifts, and that's really what is in view. Um, When you read the New Testament, it's... uh, interesting to see that each member of the Godhead is involved in the giving of gifts. Certainly, if there is one uh, ministry who's highlighted in this area, it would be God the Holy Spirit. But Christ here in Ephesians 4, one of four central passages that deal with the subject of spiritual gifts, they're dealt with throughout the New Testament, but there are four passages that are certainly highlighted. And so um, here in Ephesians 4, it says that Christ gave spiritual gifts. In Romans 12, the Father gives spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts. And again, you can't dissect the Trinity. And so quite often in the scripture, we will see each member of the Trinity involved in some aspect or ministry, um, whatever it is, whether it's the creation of the world where the Father is credited with making the world, the spirit is involved in the process, as Job and Genesis both affirm. Uh, God the Son, all things were created through him. In the resurrection, God the Father is the one who is said to have raised Christ from the dead. Uh, Jesus said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. On another occasion, I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it back up. Uh, He was raised by the spirit of holiness, Romans 1. So each member is involved. Here Christ is involved in giving spiritual gifts. And these are gifts that are mentioned, not offices. And so he gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and and pastor teachers. Um, Really, pastor teacher, today we might write pastor slash teacher. Because there's these little connective words all the way through the passage And it's the word and, apostles and, prophets and, um, uh, and some as pastor and teachers. And the last and is a different kind of and, connecting the two words together. So there's the gift of pastor, there's the gift of teacher here, there's a reference here to the gift of pastor teacher. And that's, of course, primarily what a pastor does, among other things, at least what he's supposed to do, is to feed the flock of God. And that's how his shepherding is expressed through the teaching and preaching of the word of God. One critical aspect. Uh, There are no uh, apostles in the sense that there are those who fill the office of apostleship. 
that was a unique first century foundational office in the early church. And so to have been an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ. Paul will argue in 1 Corinthians 9, have I not seen the risen Christ when they um, went to choose someone to take uh, Judas's place after he defected, having never, of course, truly believed uh, they had to have someone who had seen the risen Christ, among other things. And so that was a qualification. You had to have been uh, called of the Lord. And if indeed the Lord had called you and you had seen him, then there would be indeed certain confirming signs that would accompany your life. So the office of apostleship is unique uh, to those men to whom God called as apostles. Here he's speaking of gifts. And in many translations, um, you will see this word apostle translated in different ways. And so sometimes it's a little difficult to discern, well, is this the office or the gift? But contextually, he's speaking of gifts. He ascended up into heaven and he gave gifts to man. So he's not speaking of the office. There's the gift of prophecy. Uh, And certainly there are two dimensions to it in the early church. There was the foretelling dimension and the foretelling. Um, the foretelling dimension certainly had a revelational sense to it where a prophet could become a direct conduit of, of divine revelation where God literally gave him a word from heaven. Since the canon of scripture is completed, that dimension is gone. But the foretelling is still there. Some of these gifts have common characteristics. Uh, the gift of apostleship, uh, the word means a sent one. Sometimes in our English Bibles, the, the word apostolos or apostoloi, the plural, um, is used to describe a messenger of the church. In either case, uh, clearly these were men who were gifted to go and to plant churches and to represent uh, other churches as the church was growing. Uh, that gift is still being used today. You see people who are driven to plant churches. Again, there are certain aspects of the gift that uh, continue uh, and mimic some of the other gifts. They are teachers, they are evangelists, but the difference between them saying a pastor teacher is they're short term. They're content to go and start a church, get it up and running, much like the apostles many times did, like Paul. But with this gift, once it's established, they're looking to find elders or pastors who will continue to shepherd the church long term. So these are all equipping gifts. You might want to, if you want to do a thorough study, is consider taking the course that we offer through the Institute of Biblical Studies uh, on the subject of spiritual gifts. The course is 130 pages long, and among other things, you would take a test, which you can take online at searchthescriptures.org. Uh, There's a hard copy for those who don't have access to a computer that's in the course itself, but most people have access somewhere to a computer. That's the easiest way to take the test because the computer scores it for you. And you answer 128 questions, not as you'd like them to be, but as they are in your life. And it will help you to identify your gift. These are leadership gifts in the church. They're dependent on all the other gifts to function properly where he will say the whole body is fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. But these are certainly leadership gifts in the church that are essential 
for health in a local assembly? Anyway, I appreciate that question. It's a good one, Calvin. Or That was Tom from New Hampshire. Let's go to our a live caller who's waiting, Rick. All right. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. I have a couple comments and a two-part question. Uh, first, uh, with all this going on in Syria, uh, there's been a lot of debate on whether or not we should get involved. I think I heard Pat Buchanan says that we shouldn't get involved in a civil war. And some have even said that they don't think that Assad is responsible, that it might be the al-Qaeda-led rebels in an attempt to get rid of Assad so that they could gain control and ultimately get the, the weapons. My first question is, is, what do you think about this, uh, what, and what does the Bible say? And uh, my second uh, comment is, I know that there's nothing that needs to take place, no more prophecies that need to be fulfilled for Christ to come. But I heard someone mention that one thing that has not happened is that Damascus has not been completely destroyed ever in history. Uh, and I wonder with what's going on in Syria now, what, what do you think about that? There's several good questions here that you've brought together. Uh, let me just start with the last one. It is true, Isaiah 17 connects the second coming of Messiah, the second coming, not the rapture of the church, which precedes the second coming. And, and some people, when they use the term second coming, use it to refer to a whole series of events. So let me just say, just like when we think of the first coming, we think of you know Jesus coming to Bethlehem as a little baby and the angel's message to Mary and the angel's message to, to Joseph and all the events that transpired in his childhood all the way through his death, burial, or resurre- resurrection and ascension. And so sometimes people in a corporate way say, well, that's the first coming of Christ. And certainly it's a good summary word. And so when I use the term second coming, there's a technical and non-technical way in which to use it. Second coming will be used in a broad sense to refer to all those events that unfold all the way through uh, Messiah's millennial reign. And in a um, more, t- that's a non-technical sense. In a more technical sense, um, people would distinguish the rapture of the church, which could happen at any moment. And so as you read the New Testament, there is an imminency that Jesus could come. And they lived with that expectation. Um, Paul lived with it. He said, we shall not all sleep. Uh, and he uses the uh, pronoun we, we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And he includes himself in that. Was he wrong to do that? No, he was right to do that. He was right to expect that Jesus could come at any moment. There is much prophecy that has to be fulfilled for the second coming when he literally comes to the earth. So there are two comings, so to speak, in the second coming program, if I can say it that way. In the first coming, he comes to catch us up, and we meet the Lord in the air. Uh, We're going to meet the Lord in the air. The dead shall rise first, and we who are alive shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, Jesus in John 14 says, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I I would have told you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So here the picture is Jesus is coming and he's taking us back to the place where he is right now. 
um, that we often refer to as the rapture of the church. Some people will say, well, the rapture is not found in the Bible. Where is the word rapture? Well, it's the Greek word harpazo, and it's the Latin word rapto, in which our English theological term rapture comes. It's like the word trinity. That's a theological catchword that we use to describe that God exists as one God in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. The word is not found in the Bible, but the doctrine is. And so uh, you could say, well, in our English Bibles, the word rapture doesn't appear, but it's taught that Jesus is coming. So on the one hand, he comes in the air for his church. On the other hand, the Bible is very clear that he comes to the earth, literally. And so the Bible says, for instance, in Zechariah 14, behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight among these nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem in the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So here's the Lord coming to a city that's divided. And I, and I find it very interesting that we have people who want to divide Jerusalem, who want to make a dual capital for what they call Palestine and Israel. Um, but that is going to happen someday, but it's going to happen by, by war, not through peaceful means. And when it happens, then the Lord will fight against all those nations because the Bible prophesies that the nations of the world, the peoples of the world, will come against uh, the people of Israel. And in that day, in that time frame, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So that's a very different kind of coming where he literally comes to the earth and his feet touch the earth and he splits the Mount of Olives in two. It's really a fascinating thing to consider. Um, so there's a lot that has to transpire for the second coming. Isaiah 17 speaks of Jerusalem, which, uh, excuse me, Damascus, which is indeed one of the oldest cities uh, in human civilization, which has never been destroyed. You know, there are many... Uh, tells that you go to in Jerusalem, in Israel, uh, all across Israel of cities that once existed and were totally demolished. And they built another city on top of that. And that city was attacked and it was demolished. And after a while, you, you, you built almost like a little mound. And then go through the layers of that mound. They're called in archaeological terms a tell and, and unfold all these different cities and civilizations. Um, Damascus has never been obliterated in its history. Now, we see some turmoil, without a doubt, going on, and the, the infrastructure is being torn apart in Damascus. A lot of it is, is in the suburbs, but can we say that the city of Damascus has been totally demolished and in ruins, like Isaiah 17 says? No, not yet, but it's going to happen. Now, certainly, if that happened next week and uh, the Isra Israelis dropped an atomic bomb, say, on Damascus and totally obliterated the place, uh, then that would be a fulfillment, and you know, wow, um, the second coming of Christ is just that much closer. Now, the question begs, what should we do as a country 
uh, and it's a fair question, and I don't know that there's an easy answer, certainly not for me because I don't have the information and the intelligence that maybe the president and other people have. But assuming, assuming for the sake of argument that it is true that Assad uh, gassed his own people, that's a terrible thing. And should we stand by and do nothing? Well, if you want a Bible verse, um, the one that comes to mind is here in Proverbs 24. It says, deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter or hold them back. If you say, see, we don't know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the heart? Does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? He's saying, in other words, you can't ignore injustices in the world and say, well, that's not my problem. I don't see it. So we should do something. What should we do? I don't know what the answer is. Um, Sometimes you don't know how to praise you ought. So we prayed as a congregation on Sunday morning for God to work in the hearts of leaders around the world and to direct their steps. Uh, There's an international court system that we have for these kinds of crimes. And if indeed Assad is innocent, then why would he not subject himself to something like the Hague and say, well, if you're innocent, then, you know, you can be tried in the international court. And if you're found not guilty, then not a problem. Um, So there are people that we we tried, you know, through the um, Germany in the Second World War and these criminals who gassed Jewish people and they went through a procedure and those who were found guilty, they, they faced the consequences uh, I'm not sure what a small strike would do. Uh, maybe it sends a message. I, I don't know. But I'm certainly praying for them. And if God hears the prayer of anyone, he hears the prayers of his people. Now, you can get hundreds of thousands of lost religious people together in a square to pray, but it doesn't mean a hoot a thing. What matters is that when God's people pray, those who are born again, and that's what God calls us to do, to pray for all who are in authority over us, that it might be peaceful with us. But you could certainly see if if something like this happened and there was an attack that took place, how there would be a, a huge, potentially, I'm not saying it would happen, but potentially there could be a massive war in the Middle East. And certainly that could unfold some of the events that would lead to the return of God's son from, from heaven, like the destruction of Damascus. Anyway, great question. Let's go to our, our next uh, caller or question that's been dictated. Indeed, we do have a live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Have we lost are you, it? Are you there, caller? Um, yeah. Well, let's, let's go to the yeah, next. Can, can you oh, hear me now? Yeah, go ahead. There you are. Sure. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, I was reading through my Bible this morning. I come across um, a verse in Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 8 and 9. I would just um, wanted your help with kind of maybe an explanation on two, those two verses. Um, verse 8 speaks of the uh, um, the Lord consuming the earth with the fire of his jealousy, and then, not, and then the other verse 9 is talking about changing the language of his people so we can all worship in one language. And um, I'm going to hang up, and I would just uh, like to see if you can just explain those verses so I can understand them a little bit more, if you would. Zephaniah is an interesting little prophet in he is uh, dealing with uh, the day of judgment on Judah. Uh, if you remember, the kingdom divided into the northern kingdom, uh, comprising of 10 tribes who did not recognize the leadership of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, 
Rehoboam, if you remember, came to the throne. And and God, because of the moral compromise of Solomon, said, I'm going to tear your kingdom apart. But for the sake of your father, David, because I had such a deep, you know, abiding relationship with him, I'll wait until your reign is over and I'll do it through your son. So Rehoboam comes to the throne, if you recall, and uh, he listens not to the older, wiser elders, but to some of the young leaders in the nation. And they say, oh, the people, they're rebellious. Tax them harder, work them harder, and the, the, the kingdom splits. Ten northern tribes, Israel. And that's a little confusing for some people because when you read through the Bible, sometimes all of the Jewish people are just termed Israel. But there comes a point in their history where just the 10 northern tribes are described as Israel and the two southern tribes are described as Judah. And this is important because, and by the way, the two southern tribes are called Judah after the larger of the two tribes, the tribe of Judah. It's Judah and Benjamin. So Benjamin did not defect. Uh, they, they, they stayed with Judah. In either case, uh, when you read the Old Testament prophets, you want to ask, well, to which group of people is he addressing? Are they addressing the folks um, before the exile takes place? These are called pre-exilic prophets. Because the ten tribes had fallen into idolatry, God sent prophets to warn them, telling them to repent or God would judge them. And he did. He judged the ten northern tribes, the Israelites, or Israel, through the Assyrians. And then God sent more prophets to the southern tribes and said, look, it's going to happen to you if you don't listen. And they didn't listen either. And so God sent judgment on the two southern tribes, Judah, through the Babylonians. So Zephaniah is a prophet to the two southern tribes. And as you read his prophecy, he deals not only with um, the immediate day in which he lives, calling the people to repentance, but he looks down the corridors of time to the end time, uh, to a time when there will be great harm brought on the city of Jerusalem and the nations of the world will come against her. And of course, the New Testament prophesies this. Jesus spoke of it in the Olivet Discourse. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I will rise up to the prey. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. For then I will give to the people purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. And so he's looking down the carters of time to a time that's called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day. Uh, It's um, a period of time that mimics a biblical day. A biblical day goes from sundown to sundown. That's people often ask, well, how could Jesus die on Friday and be raised on the third day? Because he died Friday before sundown. That's day one. He was in the tomb Friday evening through Saturday evening. That's day two. And early morning Sunday on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And so... The day of the Lord mimics a biblical day. It starts in shadows and it gets darker and darker and darker. And then the sun comes up and then in the end it gets dark. And so the day of the Lord, when you read of it, sometimes, most of the time you read of just the awful turmoil because it's describing those dark days that turn into the black of night, what Jesus called the great tribulation period. 
where Jesus said, unless those days were cut short, there wouldn't be any survivors. Daniel the prophet says the same thing. It's an unparalleled time in human history where tribulation, as Jesus describes in the Revelation as well, in his address to the seven churches, comes upon the whole world. There's never been a time like that on the whole world, but it is coming. And these nations of the world that are going to gather against the people of Israel, right now the United States of America is an ally of Israel. There's coming a time when the United States of America will oppose Israel with all the other nations of the world. All of the nations of the world will go against Israel. And then God's going to pour out his wrath and anger upon the world. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called the great tribulation in the New Testament. It's designed with two purposes in mind. One, to bring the Jewish people to faith in Christ. And when we study Romans 9 through 11, if you're listening and you don't have a church, come to Community Bible Church this Sunday. We have two services at 915 and 11 at our Beaufort campus and one service at 11 o'clock at our Bluffton campus, which meets behind the BMW dealership on Highway 278 in Bluffton. Uh, But we're coming shortly to Romans 9 through 11 that deals with the people of Israel. Romans 9 deals with their election. Romans 9 is one of the most controversial chapters. It's in the top 10 in all of the Bible. We're going to exegete that chapter very, very carefully. It's used by many to say that God elects some people to go to heaven and others to go to hell that you could have two babies who had never seen the light of day and God decides one ever before they're born is going to go to heaven, the other is going to go to hell. We'll look at that very, very carefully. But uh, 9, 10, and 11, the national section of the book of Romans deals with Israel, not only why God selected them and why they're in unbelief, but what God is going to do in the future. And one of the functions of the time of Jacob's trouble, as Jeremiah the prophet refers to it, describing the worst part of the day of the Lord is to bring them to faith. But it's also going to bring many Gentiles to faith. John in the Revelation sees a great multitude of all the nations of the world that no one can even count. He likens it to the sand of the seashore of people who come to faith during the Great Tribulation. These are people who have never heard the gospel before in power and in clarity. And the end result is that the people who call on the name of the Lord, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, They will serve him shoulder to shoulder. The nations of the world for the first time ever will truly be unified. If you go to the United Nations, there's a big stone plaque on the outside quoting the prophet Isaiah, um, where it talks about how they will um, take their weapons and turn them into, you know, instruments of peace and so forth. And uh, it's a verse taken out of context that the United Nations thinks that they're going to pull this off. They're not going to pull it off. Uh, This is something the Prince of Peace is going to pull off. And he will give them purified lips, meaning these are not people who just externally worship God, but these are people who internally worship God because throughout the word of God, the, uh, the tongue, the lips, the mouth is connected to the human heart. And because these are a redeemed people, they will truly worship the Lord. Now, um, you, you mentioned here um, that there'll be one language. I think that would be eisegesis on our part. Now, it may certainly be true because what happened at the Tower of Babel 
where um, the languages of the world were divided and one language became multitudes of languages and that's how we got the races of the world as people intermarried within their language groups. Uh, some would argue that that will be restored. Certainly it will be restored in some sense. We'll be able to understand each other. It's like someone with the gift of interpretation. Though they know English, if you lived in the first century, they might listen to a Hebrew person and perfectly understand it. Now, English didn't obviously exist in the first century, so that's a weak illustration. But my point is they can understand each other, and we'll be able to understand each other in heaven. Now, whether we'll understand foreign languages as they're spoke, spoken or whether God will give us one unified language, we, we don't know. That would be an argument of speculation because this text does not teach it. But what it does teach is that we will preach and worship God with purified lips from clean hearts because there will be a redeemed people every, of every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, is what the Bible speaks of. Anyway, I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener dictated their question. They would like to know, how can somebody be sure of their salvation? Well, none of us could be certain of our salvation if salvation in any way, shape, or form were earned. But salvation is not earned. And the Bible says we can be sure. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. The Bible says we can know that we have eternal life. What things has he written? These things I've written to you who believe. He's addressing people because one of the challenges that John faced in his day is there were people who came into the church who claimed to be Christians but really were not Christians. They didn't have the marks of conversion on their lives. And so he says, children, it is the last hour. And again, you sense as you read the New Testament that they had the um, the belief that Jesus could come at any moment. And so the last days technically began according to Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Now, I believe we're in the last of the last hour. Maybe the clock's at five minutes till 12. Um We're in the last of the last days. And so he says, children, it's the last hour. And just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, that one world leader that Jesus spoke of, that the prophets spoke of, that Paul spoke of, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know it's the last hour. And so Jesus uh, in the uh, kingdom parables in Matthew 13 foretold that the spirit of Antichrist would be at work Uh, beginning with his ascension, because he would send his church out to sow seed, but the devil would have his servants who would go out and sow tares. And so the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of Christ are both at work. I think it's heating up, though. I think you're seeing the spirit of Antichrist in terms of his expression increase. In either case, they went out from us, but they were really not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they all went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. So he's saying, listen, these people come in who say, I'm a born-again Christian. And then they defect from the faith. He's saying you have proof positive that they were never really true, genuine believers. Because a true believer will persevere. This is what the Reformers meant by the perseverance of the saints. Today we often 
um, summarize that thought with once saved, always saved. That's true, and that's implicit within that, but that's not what they were looking at. When they spoke of perseverance of the saints, they were saying that a true Christian will not defect. He will persevere. He will serve Christ, not as a means to salvation, but as a mark of salvation, not as a root of salvation, but as a fruit of salvation. And so as you read First John, these things, and he's underscored a number of them, he's saying, listen, if these things are true in your life, for instance, by this we know we've passed out of death into life. We love the brethren. Uh, that, that's a mark of someone who's born again. They love God's people. I meet these people who say, well, I'm born again. Oh, you go to church? No, I, I, we, you know, we, we don't go to church. Have you ever gone to church? No, you know, we just, we just kind of do our own thing. But, you know, we love God. We're born again. We've been saved and we're going to heaven. Well, by this we know we've passed out of life, out of death into life. We love the brethren. So there are certain marks that, or fruit, that are evidences of genuine conversion. Now, some people, when you ask your question, it's an important one, and I don't know where you're coming from because you dictated it, but some people are asking this question because they don't even know what the plan of salvation is. And again, salvation is not something that is earned. It is a gift that is received. And so initially, that's why we can know. And that's why Jesus said we could make a declaration. Uh, about those whose sins were retained and those whose sins had been forgiven. Because if a person truly, genuinely, in faith, called upon the name of Jesus Christ, trusted that his death and resurrection alone could save them and nothing that they could do, if they did that out of a pure, genuine, true faith, then God says they've got the real, genuine item. And if they do have the real item, then their life will change. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So if you're not certain about initially how to receive that gift, what I want to encourage you or anyone listening to me today would be to go to wagp.net or searchthescriptures.net or cbcabufort.us, any of those websites, and click on, would you like to know God as your friend? Or you could come if you'd like tonight, Tuesday night, I'll be in Bluffton at 7.15. And I'll be sharing with people how they can know they have eternal life. If you live on this side of the Broad River, I'll be Thursday night here in Beaufort at 7.15 at both campuses. And again, you can go to cbc at us. It's a two coastal drive in Bluffton tonight, right behind the BMW dealership. Um, and so just uh, go down there tonight. There is child care. It's at 715. If you don't have assurance of your salvation, if you're listening to me right now and you do not have assurance of your salvation, you're not absolutely 100% certain that if you died or Christ sounded, had the trump of God sounded today, that you would go to heaven. Boy, that's, there's nothing more important than you're ever going to settle in this life. Uh, you don't want to be wrong on eternity, and it's going to start one of these days for many, many people. So you need to be ready. So come tonight or come Thursday night. If you're dealing with issues, well, I, I made, quote, unquote, a decision, but, you know, my life hasn't changed, then you really want to take a hard look. Paul tells the Corinthians, test yourself to see if you be of the faith. Because, again, works, fruit, is the general disposition of someone who's been born again. By this, you will know them by their fruits. 
And so there are certain evidences that are true. And First John, among other books in the New Testament, underscores what some of those evidences are. And it's in that context that he says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. He's not writing to people who are doubting their salvation. He's writing to people, among others, who might have a false assurance of salvation to underscore on what basis they can truly know that they have eternal life. Hope that helps. Uh, Let's go to the next caller or question. All right. Our next listener was reading Genesis and would like to know if Adam and Eve had relations before the fall. Uh, He asks because there's no indication they had children until afterwards. Well, um... It's, it's a good question. When you, read, when you read Genesis, it appears that the events unfold rather, rather quickly. Um, and so when you um, come to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, which is post-fall, Genesis 3, uh, the fall is recorded and the temptation, and it says, now the man... And that's a time word, by the way, in Genesis. It's a time word. Now the man had relations with his wife. Now, if you have the New American Standard, there's a little footnote, a little number one, right before had relations, and, uh, or right before had. And, and so, it, by the way, it's good and helpful to have a, a Bible with footnotes because sometimes the, the goal of translation is to make it understandable. And sometimes if you make it too literal, um, people don't always understand it because language sometimes changes with time. But if there's a play on words or a significant literalness that needs to be underscored for the person who really wants to study the scriptures closely, then the New American Standard does an excellent job in their footnotes, like no other translation I am aware of. Uh, They have the best marginal notes of any English Bible in the world that I'm familiar with. And so it says, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And then it says, and again, she gave birth to another. Um, And it goes on, and you know, the story of Cain and Abel. Now, where it says had relations, literally the Hebrew text says, now the man knew uh, Eve. He he knew he he knew his wife Eve is what it says. So had relations with literally reads. Now the man knew his wife Eve. What do you mean he knew her? Uh, he knew her in what sense? Uh, he knew her name? No, of course not. He knew her intimately, sexually, and so this is a a euphemism. This is a Hebraism of sorts that describes sexual intercourse. And so it appears it's after the fall um, that they had that first knowledge of one another. Um, and certainly it, it makes sense because um, when you read the Genesis account, all of a sudden God comes into the garden and he says, uh, he asks some questions, where are you? He asks these series of questions, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? In other words, they weren't even aware of their nakedness prior to the fall. Uh, They didn't have clothes on. How did they not know they were naked? Well, you know, God describes himself as being clothed in a robe of light. They were probably clothed in a robe of light. And when sin came into the world, the lights went out. They certainly died on the inside. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, not fully described here in the text, uh, they're aware of their nakedness. 
And so it's it's after the fall that they know each other sexually. And, of course, sin is passed on from generation to generation. And so their offspring are two sinners who come and worship God, uh, one in the prescribed manner, the other in a false manner. Good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980, or email us, as this listener has, uh, to tbl at net. Now, she included a, um, I, I guess, an attachment with her uh, question, and she asked if you had ever heard of Professor Grant Horner's Bible reading system. She says she gets a, a number of uh, invitations to participate in it via email, and uh, actually it looked a little bit frightening to her. I, I, it's a three-page thing, and uh, the upshot of it was that he works uh, with John MacArthur's Master's College, uh, but uh, he promotes this uh, reading system uh, where you basically read about 10 chapters a, a day in a series of uh, lists that he gives you, and uh, you read it rather quickly. Uh, don't take time to kind of go back and forth. And uh, uh, anyway, that's the upshot of it. What are your thoughts? Anything? Well, uh, I've not I've not seen him, but I see here in uh, the summary that he's associated with the Master's College and the Master's Seminary. Uh, he's actually involved with the Master's College, um, and he um, serves as the chair of uh, hermeneutics at Trinity Classical Academy. So if MacArthur has him on his staff, he's going to be a sound biblical Christian. And there are many different approaches that people have had in terms of, you know, reading through the Bible. And that's obviously what he's encouraging you to do. Um, There's uh, the 637 plan where you read 10 chapters a day of the New Testament and you read through the whole New Testament in a month, say. Um, Most uh, plans cover about four chapters of the Bible a day. If you read approximately four chapters of the Bible a day, you'll read through the whole Bible in a year. Uh, There are plans where you read a psalm every single day, uh, plus some other scripture. There are some plans where you read a psalm and a proverb every day, plus some other scripture. There are some plans like MacArthur created a, a reading Bible to read through the Bible in a whole year that came out a few years ago. And there's an Old Testament, New Testament reading. Uh, not in sequential order per se, but you read through the whole Bible in the course of a year. So, um, and I say not in sequential order, I'm not saying that you're not reading through a whole book at a time, but you're not necessarily reading, you know, Genesis and then Matthew and then Exodus and then, um, you know, uh, Mark, uh, but you're reading through the whole Bible. And when you start a book, you read through that book along with the New Testament book. So, um, there are many good plans and many different approaches. I, I think whatever works for you is what's important. Uh, whatever works for you, whatever gets you through God's word is what is important. And there are certainly people who have read through the whole Bible in a year and they've done it every year, but it doesn't necessarily help them. So I think um, to read reflectively, to read carefully, to have some time where you can slow down is what is most important. Uh, but sometimes it's really helpful just to sit down and read through a whole book of the Bible, like if you were to read a letter. Um, you don't usually read, you know, a page one day and a page another day. If it's a six-page letter, you, you sit down and read through the whole thing. 
And sometimes it's really helpful to read books of the Bible that way. In fact, when I prepare to teach a whole book of the Bible, sometimes I'll read it through many, many, many times through in one sitting each time because it gives me a flavor and a feel for the whole book. And a lot of um, hermeneutical error comes by not seeing the book of as, as a whole. So even last week when we were on Sunday dealing with Hebrews 6, one of the top 10 uh, difficult passages in the New Testament, some call it the most difficult chapter in the whole New Testament, uh, one of the hermeneutical uh, problems I think that people face is they don't know the whole letter. They, they've never read through the whole letter and really got a feel for the entire letter. And so even uh, the doctrine of eternal security is taught in the writer to the Hebrews. So at the front of it, we talked about three major positions in Hebrews 6. One of the things that we looked at was the fact that the writer of the Hebrews himself teaches eternal security. And I read not some of the other passages in the New Testament. There's over 150 in the New Testament, but some that the writer of the Hebrews had. So let's give him credit for not contradicting himself. And we have to understand the passage in light of that. So uh, look, any, any, any Bible reading program that gets you into the Word of God, that's fantastic. I'm in favor of it. And uh, go for it. All right. We just got a call from a listener. And uh, they write in, or actually dictated, in Luke one seventeen, uh, the verse from Malachi four six is partially quoted. And the listener would like to know what this passage means. Well, you might want to listen to my series on the prophet Malachi. Um, unfortunately, Malachi is one of those prophets who, who gets limited coverage. And usually the only time he's preached is when a pastor wants to speak on tithing. But I went through every single verse in Malachi. And I went through it verse by verse by verse by verse by verse. And if you do that, it really gives you a kind of a, a flow for what's happening and um, how it's unfolded. And you see how all the parts fit together. And, and Malachi deals with six major sins that the people in his day, and Malachi comes right where you'd expect him to come at the end of the Old Testament era. Um, so let me read to you Luke one seventeen because not everyone, again, has a Bible in their hands. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so here's, um, here's a reference uh, to John the Baptist and his ministry. He's already been mentioned uh, in the book of Malachi in chapter 3, where the forerunner is already spoken of. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Uh, this is a reference here in Isaiah 40 as well to, to John the Baptist's um, ministry. He comes and he prepares the way of the Lord and he points people to Messiah. In that sense, he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And of course, what's really interesting too is when you read Malachi 4, you in, in Malachi 3, you have a very clear, specific reference to John's ministry. And you put Malachi 3 together with Isaiah's account and you see them in the New Testament where Elijah um, 
had a ministry that mimicked John or John's ministry mimicked Elijah. And so Jesus said in one sense, yeah, he could have been an Elijah of sorts because the Bible speaks of the second coming of Elijah. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances, which I commanded him and Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So this is kind of a two-sided prophecy. It had its initial fulfillment in the ministry of John the Baptist, and that's how Luke is referencing it. But it's also a reference to the coming of Elijah, which if you remember, he was uh, really as a, as a type of rapture, was caught up and carried up into heaven and translated. And of course, uh, he's there in the Mount of Transfiguration with uh, Moses. And he's going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. What day is that? That's uh, during the time of the great tribulation period that will consummate with the second coming of Christ, the second coming of Messiah, when all the world will be judged. And he is going to, Elijah the prophet, restore the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So there's a second coming of Elijah. There's an Elijah yet to come, which Jesus underscored when he described John's ministry. That is still going to happen. And um, what's very interesting, too, when you come into the Revelation at the end of the Bible, there are two witnesses in Jerusalem, and these two witnesses mimic the ministries of both Elijah and Moses. And it might be that that's precisely who these two witnesses are. We don't know for sure. We can't say that dogmatically, but we do know that Elijah is coming again, literally, physically, actually. So it would make sense that he would certainly be one of those two witnesses that will come before the second coming of Christ. So it's an interesting passage. That's just really the short answer. So you might want to consider uh, going online to searchthescriptures.org and clicking on the book Malachi. And I can't remember, maybe 10 messages I preached in the prophet Malachi. And that's the last message I preached in Malachi the prophet. And listen to that message, and I walk through it in a lot more detail. Tonight, Tuesday, in Bluffton, at 7.15 for Meet the Pastor. If you're looking for a church home or you have questions about Christianity and the Bible, we'll be meeting this evening at 7.15 with guests. Would love for you to come. Child care is provided. Certainly, again, if you're not sure of salvation, I'm going to share an entire overview of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It will put a lot of uh, things together for, for some of us listening today. Uh, Thursday night, we'll be doing it here in Beaufort as well as at 7.15 Come into either of those buildings. If you have children, they'll show you where the child care is. And uh, look forward to maybe meeting some of you this evening. Hope you have a great day. Thanks again for joining us for this hour on The Bible Line.